0: We've been in a message series that we're continuing this morning called Greatest Hits. And uh, the subtitle of that series is Favorites from the Scriptures. And I know if you've, if you've read the Bible, I, the Bible for me, I'm passionate about the Bible. I'm fascinated by the Bible. I'm, You know, I, sometimes I remember I was in Bible college and there was a season where it was like, man, like, I'm, I'm not going to, like, get up early anymore. I got all this stuff going on in my life. I don't want to read the Bible. These are just, like, literally words on a page, like, I'll be fine without it, and I kind of took this posture of saying, you know what, like, I don't need this piece of literature in my life, and I remember, like, within a week, I was like, there's a difference in my life, there's a detriment that I'm seeing in my life, and I just truly believe the Bible isn't just uh, words on a page, but it's alive, it's, it's words from God, it's loving words to help encourage us to be people that live abundant lives, so we're going to be looking at some favorites from the scriptures in this series, and um, everybody's favorites look different. That's the deal. And um, we're going to be having some guests and some staff members uh, be preaching in the next few weeks. But um, we've been kind of looking at some of my favorites these past few weeks. Uh, we looked at the creation account a couple weeks ago. And then last week we looked at the Ten Commandments. And what are the implications for these commandments in terms of how do they affect us into in 2019? But this morning um, we're going to be looking at a story in the scripture that is the story of Mary and Martha. And this is one of my favorite stories, and I'll say this is that the way that I choose favorites are typically stories in the Scripture that really, radically have impacted the way I think, interpret, and really um, grasp the Bible. Um, I love, I love uh, certain sections of Scripture that really are just like I look at them, and I'm like, this just, this is a game changer. Like this, this affects the entirety of the way that we look at Scripture and the posture of God's heart. And this morning, you might be like. The story of Mary and Martha, those of you who are maybe uh, familiar with this story, you're like, what, what's, what's the deal with this story, right? And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there this morning, uh, several verses of th- this story. But this morning, um, we're centering, and I've chosen this section of scripture because it's centered around, around 50% of the human population, also known as women. All the ladies in the house, come on now, there we go, there we go um here's what I know this this story is a game changer for me because this story right here it challenges the role designations for women it challenges the role designations for women during this time and culture in the first century when this piece of literature was penned and written and this morning I think it's just such a game changer because it helps us Im, make certain implications today of how it affects us as how we function as human beings and as people that are trying to faithfully follow Jesus. The, the, the story that we're going to look l- at this morning of Mary and Martha, I believe, is, is the gateway to understanding the topic of women in ministry leadership. And in some churches, that's like a cringe worthy type of conversation. It's like we don't talk about that. Maybe we don't talk about the fact that we are a church, or we are, you know, not saying that we are, but a church is saying we don't believe in pastors that are women. And I'll just say this about our church, is we are a, ch- a church that believes in empowering women in leadership. Um, you'll find out soon enough, if you haven't already, by hanging out at our church, we are co-pastored by an absolutely powerful woman of God, our co-pastor, Callie Davis, uh, who I have the privilege of uh, being, being the pastor's husband of, Right. So this morning, um, and if you ever heard her preach, you're like, why do you keep getting up here, and why don't you just, well, she's pregnant, okay, you know what I'm saying, so uh, anyway, you're going to get more of her in the future, right, so we're going to look at this story, and uh, we're going to really just get down and get to the nitty-gritty of scripture, because I think sometimes there's a posture for some people to say that. Um, people who have released women in ministry leadership don't have any convictions because we don't follow the Bible faithfully. And we're going to look into some of those specific key scriptures that people point to. But this morning, I just want to say this. As a person, I don't take getting up here, this responsibility lightly. Whatsoever. I take interpretation of the Bible and the way that we wrestle with the Bible, understand the Bible, understand the culture of the Bible, and then make practical applications into the principles of today. I take that journey so serious. This is the reason why I have a a biblical studies degree. I spent four years of my life trying to dissect and dedicate my life to understanding the Bible so that people aren't forced to go to Bible college to actually understand the Bible. The crime that I left Bible college with was, why aren't we teaching people deep things within the church? So this morning, I just want to open open the door a little bit for us to go a little bit deeper to understanding what can sometimes be a controversial topic. But I'll say this has massive implications because we're talking about 50% of the labor force of the kingdom of God on earth today. So we better have deep convictions in understanding the potential of what we have to unleash in 2019. Amen? Okay, here we go. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And I told you earlier to turn to Luke chapter 12, and uh, I was wrong. So turn to Luke chapter 10 this morning, uh, verses 38 through 42. So here we go. Uh, We're going to read this, and then we're going to really just kind of get down and dirty with it this morning with this section of Scripture. So here's what it says in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I just pray we would open up our hearts and minds this morning. I pray we would be people, Lord, that make the main things the plain things as your church. Lord, that we wouldn't complicate some things that we choose to complicate. But literally, we would become experts into your command, your new commandment to love others as you have loved us and to... Take the commission that you've called us to go and make disciples serious. And and this morning, uh, we're, we're, we're talking and we're engaging in a conversation that has implications for both. And so, Lord, this morning, uh, with humility, we come before you, uh, your scripture, in which we hold so highly. And, and we just say, use us humbly to interpret and understand and humbly submit ourselves to the process of, of what it would look like for us to interpret such a section of scripture such as this and to make some applications into our everyday life. Lord, sometimes we get overwhelmed because it's 2019 and, and we look around and we see a lot of chaos. But Lord, I just pray you'd bring peace into this place this morning. And Lord, as your people of peace, we choose to be people that rest in that peace you're providing. So Lord, provide peace, but also empower us to be, who you've called each and every one of us to be, and would we not aim and live short of that standard that you've created for us to live abundantly? Lord, you have such a large vision for us, we submit under that vision, each and every one of us this morning, in Jesus' name, everybody says, amen, amen. So, I read that scripture in the beginning, because it's one thing to just read a scripture, it's another thing to understand The cultural implications of what is happening. I'll just say this. Many times we can skim over a story in scripture and miss key points or key moments simply because we don't understand the cultural implications of what it meant to live in an ancient first century type of culture. We live in 2019 where feminism is alive and well. Women's rights is a common conversation. But I'll just say this. We cannot insert our common understanding of today and the benefits we get to reap from in 2019 and begin to automatically insert them into the scripture and act like that's how it is. Women in the first century functioned way differently when it comes to a comparison of the rights that we see in a modern culture in 2019. Namely for us as Western people that live in the United States. So we're going to really break down this morning women in the first century. And the first thing that we really need to break down is the idea of patriarchy. And a lot of people define patriarchy in many different ways, but the Bible assumes a patriarchal culture a patriarchal culture is much different looking than our modern culture. So here's how we're going to define kind of generalistically like a patriarch how we define patriarchy this morning before we continue. So this is the assumption of what was happening in the first century is that humanity was organized in a hierarchical relationship that privileges men over women. Meaning this, the assumption is men were given so many more rights than women. That was common. That's the way things were. That's the way things functioned. Through that culture is the the way that God worked through, right? God is not affirming necessarily this culture of patriarchy, but he's choosing to work within that very culture to eventually reveal his heart, namely through the person of Jesus who comes and dies for all of humanity. Amen? So we have to first define this term of patriarchy and understanding This is the assumption of the culture. The culture during this time functioned under the assumption of men having many more privileges over women. And there's a few things I think we need to note in terms of women's education and public speech, which is on the current slide. Now, there's many different observations and many different scholars have taken their time to interpret some of these really difficult scriptures, but I'll just say this. Guys have dedicated their lives to make Some clear assumptions that everyone can get on the same page with when it comes to the rights that women had during this culture, during this time. Okay, here we go. So women's education in public speech, uh, number one is this. Some women were educated. We're not going to just use, like, generalistic, like, language, like, no women had no rights, never. Like, no, some women were educated during this time. But as you can probably assume, that was reserved for the minority of the elite who had Money, one of the injustices that we see even in our current society where specific rights are neglected for those who don't have the means to afford them, right? So some women, yes, in fact, were educated, but number two is one of the big kickers. Women were much less often educated to the same degree as men of the same social class, and this included Jewish learning, meaning this, for the people of God, for the people of Israel, for those who called upon God God was the leader of their nation, many times it wasn't just a cultural example, but even within the people of God, this was common. Culture interfered and intercepted with this idea that women were much less educated, right? And then number three is this, is that ancient society rarely allowed teaching roles to women. That just was not common. And I'll say this, in the research and the study that is out there for women, that were given roles to teach. How, uh, you better believe the culture many times took a posture of saying, that's nice you're a teacher, but guess what? I'm not going to necessarily carry any of those principles with me to believe anything you're trying to teach me. See, culture definitely and was actively dictating the type of role that women had in a society in terms of the capabilities of how they could learn and if they had the ability to teach. I love What Craig Keener, one of my favorite scholars, uh, had to say, and the quote will be up on the screen, he says this, he says, highly educated women were exceptional. They were the exception rather than the rule. Women had considerably less access to education than men of their own social class did, especially education involving public activities like speaking. Outside the tiny percent of the population that was elite, Most women had less education, and even the advanced education of exceptions most often centered on domestic activity. One estimate has it that for every five or six men who could read and write, there was one woman who was fully literate. So I keep banging this drum for us to understand the stage that is being set for how women operated in first century culture based out of the story that we're reading of Mary... And Martha, Craig Keener, he, he observed additionally, and I didn't put it up on the screen, he said this, In families with means, some girls from age 7 received elementary education along with boys, but from the age of 12, however, generally only boys proceeded to the second level in public While girls focused on acquiring household skills at home. So there was this glass ceiling that kind of existed for women during this time. It's like, yeah, women were educated many times up to age seven and sometimes beyond that. But when it came to, like, uh, maturity and adult maturity, basically it was like, okay, here's your role in culture. Women are going to be more in the household capacity and men are going to be the ones who get to be in more of the educated type of capacity leading in the public sphere. And on the next slide, this kind of helps us kind of grasp the, the, the way it was during this time. All that kind of uh, narrowed down to two big ideas, which is that the public sphere during this time was known generally as masculine. You as a male who was educated and had the opportunities was more of the person who was the leader in the public sphere, in the public society versus what was considered feminine, the private sphere, right? Those who were more in tune with. opportunity to keep the house together to to rule the house to do things behind the scenes that people don't necessarily see see culture during this time this was the way things were this was the assumption of culture during this time and this is the world in which jesus was walking within so now we're going to look back at this story through a new lens Because we read it to begin with, but now we're going to apply a new lens that we have been afforded with a new cultural understanding of why Jesus' actions might be worth observing to a higher level. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42 says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, If you're Martha and you're a woman at this time and you got Jesus coming along, you're probably going to assume you also got 12 really hungry dudes. So being hospitable to all these guys, it's going to take a lot of work, probably a little bit of a stressful situation for Martha in her capacity to be hospitable. If I was Martha, I would be a little bit concerned knowing Jesus and the gang are coming over and they've been healing people, they've been ministering, and chances are they're pretty darn hungry, right? We got to have a little bit of empathy on the front end for just the domestic type of role that Martha was assumed to be in, knowing that she was about to host 13 really hungry dudes, right? Amen. We're hungry. And for Martha, this is the best type of devotion she knew how to express. How am I, in my capacity, going to provide for what she believed to be my Lord and his main followers? We get we continue on in verse thirty nine. So she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. And this is where things change a little bit. Because during this culture, normal sitting looked like this. You come over, somebody hosts you, you come over to somebody's house, and there's parallels with our current culture. Typically, you host people where they're able to sit on chairs, right? They sit on cha- chairs when they're being hosted. Oftentimes, in the other kind of main way that people used to hang out at houses, they would they would recline on couches. They would kick their feet up. but But... But Mary's doing something different in terms of this hospitable environment that was calming during the culture. She's sitting at someone's feet. And automatically, this is not normal. Because the culture during this time knew that if you were sitting at someone's feet, you were taking a very specific position. The position in which disciples of their teacher or rabbi took This was an exclusive position where if you were gleaning or learning from a superior teacher or a rabbi in the Jewish culture, you would sit at their feet automatically. This was automatic for anyone in this culture of knowing when someone sat at someone's feet in an occasion such as this, there was a type of learning experience that was happening. This was a position that only serious disciples, serious disciples, protégés took in preparing to be teachers see disciples were created to learn to then become teachers themselves and during this time see mary's taking a posture at the feet of jesus that was so radical that everyone would have noticed and specifically everyone would have noticed because they would have known why was she sitting at the feet of jesus because We know she's not permitted to be a teacher. See, this was culturally common as we've already addressed. See, Mary's posture and eagerness was to absorb from this teacher Jesus at the expense of a more traditional woman-type role, which would have shocked most Jewish men. This was shocking. Mary's taking this type of a posture. See, her intentions were to be trained by Jesus to then teach others. The disciple assumption. You don't sit at the feet just to sit there and sit there forever, but you sit at the feet, once again, of a teacher, of a rabbi, to then take that knowledge for the purpose of then multiplying that knowledge by being a teacher yourself. This is common for the way things work during this culture, and especially within the Jewish tradition. So Mary's taking this radical posture while Martha's trying to get all this stuff done. Because she's trying to host to the best of her ability in which she knows how. in the capacity that she's been given. So we go to v- verses 40 through 42, right? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord... Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. He's like, Jesus, you have authority? What is she doing? Get her on her feet. Tell her to help me in which she's supposed to in the kitchen, helping prepare the food and making sure the house is ready. And you would think, okay, Jesus submitting under the cultural assumptions, he'd be like, you know what, Mary? Yeah, you're a woman. You're not supposed to be taught with the purpose of then being a teacher. But what does Jesus do? Verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Jesus is like, you're in the presence of the Son of God. If I was in the presence of Jesus physically, I don't know about you, But I'd be trying to steward my time to the best of my ability to soak and absorb as much up with him as possible as well. He says, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. See, the matron of the house as we've learned, is culturally responsible to provide hospitality and food preparations. But for Jesus, a learning disciple was more important. Main point this morning as we just kind of wrap up. Here's kind of the, the main grasp, the main thrust that I want us to walk away from this section of scripture. Is that the role of a disciple and future minister of Jesus' message is more critical than a homemaker and a hostess. You see, any domestic activity that a woman was framed into, Jesus pushes back on it and he says, wait a second, this is my disciple. She is worthy to learn and this is something that can't be taken away from her. As long as I'm in the room, as long as my kingdom purposes are coming forth, the priority is for her to be in relationship in a learning posture, in a growing posture with her Savior, not to worry about all of the formalities and the cultural constructs of what needs to happen in this moment. This is radical. This is a radical posture Jesus takes in conjunction with the cultural assumptions in the first century. See, this story sets the stage for us our understanding of when it comes to the modern church and when it comes to gender roles in which people are willing to say or dictate what people can and cannot do and i'll just remind us of jesus see jesus was a revolutionist people looked at jesus and many times they categorized him when he came onto the ancient scene as a zealot one of these kind of spiritual revolutionaries but What was many times common with the zealot is that they would take a very aggressive, militaristic approach. But Jesus, it's interesting. Many people assumed the next king of Israel was going to be like a King David, one of these all-stars who, you know, killed Goliath. We sang the song, The Head of My Enemy. This morning, That's an allusion to the fact that after this King David in a military battle against this giant Goliath, a story many of us are familiar with, after he killed him, the story goes on past Children's Church, and what do you know? David slices his head off, lifts it above the armies of Israel to show that they are victorious, right? See, the people of God had an expectation that the next king of Israel was going to be this militaristic zealot, but... What's so interesting about Jesus is he was a zealot. He was a revolutionary, but the way that he approached it many times as you read through the the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels of his life is that rather than taking a militaristic approach, he took a very aggressive social approach. He pushed back on social norms. He broke down barriers that existed between people and people did not like him for disrupting where the money was going where the rich were getting richer, where the poor were getting poorer. He was confronting all of the religious ideas that were literally blocking the heart of God, which was going to be then revealed through himself as he eventually took upon himself to die on the cross for the sins of all humanity. I love what Jim W. Adams says. He said this in a quote. In his preaching of the kingdom of God, speaking of Jesus, he invited people to enter into a relationship with God that called women and men to operate and relate in new ways that countered and consequently subverted the current societal structures. The single highest call and role offered by Jesus was that of a disciple, and for Jesus, both women and men were equally invited to embrace this all-important vocation. You see... Jesus, this was commonplace for what Jesus was doing as he walked, as he healed, as he ministered throughout his time on earth. was not taking this aggressive, militaristic stance, but was confronting the social issues that didn't align with his government, the government of his kingdom. And the good news of the gospel of his kingdom in which he was proposing. But this is where we hit a big problem, though. Because the Bible goes on. The narrative continues. Jesus steps on the scene, sends and empowers his church, right? Dies, is resurrected, empowers, fills his church with his spirit, sends them on a mission, right? And then we have people that are catching on to this mission, and we have all these churches with all these different sorts of problems. Because what are churches? They're still imperfect people filling them, Right? And so now, in the rest of the Bible, in which we call the New Testament, many times we have letters that are addressing specific situations and problems that are happening within churches. And we, we, we encounter this guy, Paul. And Paul was this guy who was modern-day ISIS, wanted to kill Christians, and God met him on a road where he was planning the murder of Christians, faithful Jewish man. Faithful took the this, this scripture so serious, but serious to a point where he was aggressive, even in his stance that he took with others. But God meets this man in one of the greatest redemption stories. God uses this man to pen and write one third of what we call the New Testament. God used this man, was, this man was led by God's spirit to pen and write down many of the letters that we find in the New Testament. The Bible. here's a big problem because Paul when he writes uses some pretty aggressive language when it comes to women so this morning we're going to look at what I would argue is probably the one that's the most aggressive that many times people use as an opportunity to say women have no place in leadership within the church so we're going to look at it and we're going to have to wrestle with it so here we go in first Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 15 1st Timothy meaning this this is the first letter Paul was writing to the young pastor Timothy who pastored in a place called Ephesus the same place that the letter to the Ephesians was written to but this is the first letter that the protege Timothy is being written to to address specific situation that was happening within his church at this time and this is what Paul says and he writes to this young pastor, he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. it starts getting real deep, real fast here. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach Or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Uh oh. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Seems to me we got a little bit of a contradiction here. Seems to me Paul's stepping on the scene, and he's contradicting the absolute posture and the heart that we saw in the story that we led with this morning of Mary and Martha. All of the cultural implications, all of the things we talked about, it seems like Paul is in contradiction with Jesus. We got a little bit of Paul versus Jesus this morning. So does Paul's words then supersede? Jesus, then? Is Paul the new Jesus? And this is what we're required to do as the readers of the scripture. As rather than picking and choosing this scripture and running with it and ignoring the story of Mary and Martha, as the reader, when we find a seemingly contradiction, we're required to dig a little bit deeper. We're required to understand what is happening here because Jesus takes a posture that seems very embracive towards women in disciple learning and eventual teaching type roles, which was common for the disciples of Jesus. But once again, this was functioning under a very rigid, rigid and patriarchal assumed type of culture. So what do we do here? And first, I think the first thing we need to do is if Paul's writing it, what does Paul's posture with other women look like? Because this seems pretty aggressive. This seems like women, shut up, don't talk, you're not going to teach game over, right? Like, if I'm just going to read that and that's my Bible, I'm like, okay, I'm taking a pretty darn aggressive stance against women and just at face value. But here, here's what we need to understand. A few just key observations about Paul since he's written so much of the New Testament. One-third are, are letters from Paul. It, 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 Paul uses or Paul authorizes and endorses female leaders outside of this specific situation. Like, Paul's not this anti-woman guy. In fact, three great examples Yodia and Synthche of the Philippian church, Philippians 4, 2-3, acknowledges them as women, female leaders. Phoebe as a deacon in Romans 16, 1. Junia as apostle in Romans 16, 7. And those are just three main examples of a slew to show that obviously Paul is not taking a universal posture against women. So we need to deal with the text. We need to understand what is happening and why is Paul writing and taking such a posture The situation that was happening in the church in Ephesus during this time, right? So, if this isn't universal, what's going on here? So, let's put the next slide here. Here's Paul's main concern in First Timothy, and the way that we know this, well, it's in chapter one. He's got a concern of why he's writing the letter, and here's his main concern: there are male false teachers that are spreading dangerous ideas contrary to the gospel of Jesus in Timothy's church. There are people who are trying to stomp out the message of grace. The message of God's mercy, the good news of Jesus with false teachings. These are male assumed teachers that are doing this and carrying this. And Paul's writing a a letter to Timothy basically being like, this is a concern. We can't let this spread throughout this early church who is maturing, right? So let's move on to the why of why Paul wrote this letter. So why did Paul write this letter? He wrote this letter to provide clear instructions for Timothy to eradicate this false teaching and set straight the household of God in Ephesus. We've got we to get a handle of this false teaching that's against the teachings of Jesus. Jesus, he's not physically with us anymore. He's given us the responsibility to carry his message in purity. And we've got to make sure that this message that's coming in, that's infiltrating the truths about Jesus, are being stomped out. Okay, so why instructions for women specifically then? Well, as we're about to dive deep into understanding better, he wrote these instructions for women to address the same situation of false teachers who have targeted women. Typically, what do you know? Uneducated and untrained in the scriptures during this same century, who are apparently usurping authority and spreading this false teaching. Very interesting and situational and by us understanding the first layer of the culture, understanding the depth of what Paul was confronting for this young pastor Timothy and a church where there was so much at stake. So let's go back to the scripture. Once again, let's let's read it and let's begin to kind of break down some of the key ideas within here in finding a reconciliation point. 1 Timothy chapter new, 2 verses Starting with verse 9, it says, Paul's writing, he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. See, there's this emphasis on good deeds here. This is, this is the place, the trajectory of what Paul sees as a concern is saying, we need to make sure that good deeds are being executed and performed by the women within your church. They shouldn't be concerned about wearing all the nice clothes, being a distraction for everybody else, but their faith is going to show up through the good deeds. The faith that they have will be proved by their good deeds. And he says, appropriate for women who profess or worship God. Verse 11, a woman should learn. We're going to come back to that in quietness and full submission. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to Teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. Okay, two things seem to be a clear no-go for Paul writing to Timothy. Women should not teach or women should not assume authority. Now, teaching seems to be a cultural assumption that we've kind of landed on as this isn't commonplace. And women weren't educated. uh, So the idea of teaching uh, seems to kind of make sense. But this assume authority, I feel like this is one that people can really run with. Authority over a man. And we've got to dig a little bit into the Greek language to understand the word authority that's being used that we as the American Western reader are reading might not be the same word we're assuming as we're inserting our ideas of authority and how it uh, relates to a man, man and woman relationship. We have to understand what does what this authority, what does this Greek word mean here? Well, the Greek word for authority here is the Greek word authenteo. And it's actually the only instance, the word authority is all throughout the New Testament. This is the only instance where this Greek word is being used to express authority. And here's what this type of authority represents. A negative connotation of usurping or domineering. Domineering ideas. Beg I say untrained and uneducated ideas that are creating a very interesting situation for this church in the first century that's growing in the things Of Jesus. We get to verse 13. and You're like, okay, well, what about this one, right? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Some people use this verse. (laughs) I love this one. Some people use this verse and run with it and say, see, here it is. This proves men are superior in the created order. Men are superior. First, I'll just say this. If, if we're going to play the created order game that men were created first, remind you, in the creation account, animals were also created before men. Therefore, if we're going to play that logic, that means a cow is superior to both man and woman, which we know is not to be true. So using that logic absolutely does not apply. And you know what else helps us understand that we cannot run with this idea and what Paul is trying to communicate here? Galatians 3.28, written by Paul to another church, reminds us this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, we can't take a scripture, isolate it, run with it, and then come out with a patriarchal pr- preference for us as a male and saying, well, this is why I'm dominant and the superior race. That does not jive with the rest of Paul's literature and what he's encouraging throughout the church moving forward. So verse 13 obviously has some carryover in the point in which Paul is trying to make into verse 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve says, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. See, there's a central focus here on the deception and the transgression of the character Eve in the Garden of Eden. The first female, yes, created after the male, but given the same equal right created in the image of God with dignity and respect. See, some people will even take this one and say, see, this proves that men aren't as easily deceived as women. Have you read the Bible? Literally, have you read the Bible? There's more male morons in the Scripture than there is females. That's not even an argument. So what Bible are you reading? We cannot isolate this and stop using logic. That is not what the Scripture is communicating in this specific situation. What Paul is paralleling and what we know to be a fact is that men and women are both deceivable as humans throughout the scripture. Is that the women are being paralleled with Eve. These untrained, uneducated, domineering, usurping type of females during this time are being paralleled with Eve. See the women in the Ephesian church. We're being deceived the same way as Eve was when she was untrained in the commands of God. I remind you that it was God who spoke to Adam and gave the commands. And it was Adam's their responsibility to be the teacher for Eve. In which I will say this, a lot of people point to the fault being Adam or being Eve in the creation account. But maybe, just maybe, Adam failed at being a good teacher. A good enough teacher to imply the heart of And the damage and the consequences of what was at stake for her to not be trained and rehearsed in the commands and the things of God. There was a breakdown in communication. And all the married people said, amen. Right? There was a communication breakdown, much like Eve in the creation account, in her relationship with the teacher, Adam. First Timothy 2.15 goes on and says, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And then you always got the wise guy. See, the only role for women to prove themselves is through having children. I've heard it before, everybody. Women's entry point in the community of God is found by their God-given role, which is to have kids. But come on, once again, let's proof against the author Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, who says this and reminds us this as the people of God, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Your entry point, your dignity, who you are is not proved as a woman through childbearing, but it is through Faith, faith is what gets you in, not childbearing, faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Same author, different application to a specific situational circumstance in which Paul was addressing with his young protege, Pastor Timothy. Paul's trying to communicate something so profound that faith is evidenced. Faith without works is dead, in which the Apostle James reminds us in his letter that our faith is proven through good works of God. And in the capacity that women were given in this untrained, uneducated posture, one of the beauties in what they had the capacity to do during this time was to do what? to have children, to build families. You see, a trajectory moving forward for women in this kind of strong-armed situation where untrained and uneducated women will be giving this false doctrine and voice. Paul is giving specific encouragements to say, women, be marked by good deeds, and one of those good deeds for you right now is to receive a God-given role that you have to bear children, to build families, given these specific Circumstances Faith is evidenced Through appropriate godly action And Paul is saying Embrace your God-given role As females currently So here's our conclusion On 1st Timothy chapter 2 Verses 9 through 15 There's a short-range solution And I love this About what Paul is encouraging Timothy Here's a short-range solution Women should not take ruling positions As teachers in the church Not a good idea They're they're untrained. They're uneducated. They're going to help spread and create more messes in the congruity of what Jesus was trying to accomplish in the first century. This is a byproduct of the culture that was created with patriarchal preference. But there's a long-range solution that we might miss that Paul encourages. Let them learn. Let them learn. Let them. Train them up. Teach them. If they're uneducated, here's what you're going to do. Here's how we're going to deal with this problem. Educate them. Take the same posture Jesus did. Don't forsake it when a female comes to the feet as wanting to be a disciple, a learner, and a teacher. But affirm them and let them learn. Learning and forbidding to teach are temporary solutions to the central and current problem of false teachers in Ephesus. To come out universally to isolate this section of scripture, it contradicts other statements Paul said, it contradicts other things Paul did, and it disaligns Paul from the mission and the trajectory Jesus was setting his church upon to be inclusive in the teaching and the learning of female disciples moving forward. So here's where we're going to land this morning. Last scripture. One of my favorite scriptures, talking about leadership. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2. Same author, Paul, second letter. Meaning this, time has passed by. Meaning this, there's probably been some progress being made. Meaning this, the sequel to probably new church problems, all the pastor said, amen, right? That have sprung up after the old church problems. This is what he says in second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. People. Interesting word choice for Paul. The Greek, he doesn't use male-exclusive language to describe people here, but he uses a Greek word, Anthropoi. Not the distinctive Greek word for women, gune, a word that's been used ten times in First Timothy to distinguish males from females. Not the Greek word for man, honor, that was used five times in the first letter to distinguish male from female. But anthropoi, a word that is used by Paul throughout these letters to describe mankind, all people. So, what do we have here in 2 Timothy 2, 2? Keep that, keep that up on the screen. Reliable people. All people. Mankind. This is how we're going to treat male and female who will also be qualified to what? Teach others. Teach others. All people. All mankind. And here's what's so beautiful about this verse. Four generations of disciples. See disciple making. Paul pouring into Timothy, who pours into someone else, who then pours into somebody else. Four generations. I don't know about you. I want to be a spiritual grandparent when I when I reach heaven. Who have I discipled? That's discipled somebody. That's discipled somebody. See, and, and Paul's breaking down the limits on this type of decision as a church. This is what we do. We make disciples. We train others. We invest in a few. We invest in relationships. Relationships is the vehicle. And the vehicle apparently is not limited as the trajectory of Jesus bursts forth into the world between male and female. So this morning, I want to I say this in terms of the type of church that we are. We are convinced and we are convicted that we will not cut off 50% of the population towards God's labor force and the purposes of his kingdom. That's not what we're doing. We are convinced and convicted by the principles within the scripture. And we treat that journey absolutely serious. But I want to leave us with this. Women, don't just be inspired this morning. Be empowered. You're a part of a church community that believes in you. Believes that you can change the world. And here's what I'll say about church stats. 66% of you, two-thirds of people in church are women. So we're going to invest in you. We're going to believe in you until uh, the men step up. That's what we're doing. We don't want you to just be inspired. We want you to be empowered to know that you can go change the world. And where men are not stepping up, we are going to empower, invest in you, and believe in you, and support you. As a church, guess what we're going to do? We're going to take a posture with other female pastors in our community, and we are going to encourage the heck out of them. And remind them that their calling is true. And men in the house, here's my encouragement to you. Don't just say you believe in women. Invest in them and believe in them. We've sat in too many meetings where people know the things to say, but then their churches look a whole lot different. We as a church are going to be aggressively pursuing and empowering women in leadership opportunities where there is no glass ceiling. Because that's what we believe God is stirring and doing in our community and beyond. Be encouraged and let's go and make disciples. Amen? Let's pray.